Yeah, I'll encourage you, church, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. If you go ahead and power up your Bible app or turn in your hard copy of God's Word, however you're looking at God's Word this morning, and find your way to Isaiah 11. As that is where we find ourselves this morning. If you want to simplify the need for the gospel, so if you want to simplify the need for the gospel and the need for Christ, the need for Christmas, down to one key issue, one key issue that just kind of simplifies and, and summarizes the need for the gospel, the need for Christ, and the need for Christmas, that it could be that of joy. What do I mean by that? You could summarize the gospel in this way, is that people seek joy outside of God where they cannot find it. And in Christ, God stepped into the sinfulness of this world to make a way for us to find joy in Him. We began this Advent season with the theme of hope, and we looked at Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, we saw that the Lord is not a passive observer, but an active designer of history. And that Christmas is God's decisive action of hope. Last week, we continued with the theme of peace, looking to Isaiah 9, where we saw confident hope produces present peace. And therefore, the hope of Christmas provides eternal peace. In Christ. So the question which I want to loom over us this morning is where is your joy this Christmas? Not even in just the Christmas season, but where are you placing your joy? Where are you seeking out joy? Where are you drawing joy from? Because the world will give us temporary or fake joy. And so we can have this sense that we're drawing joy from something of this world. But as we'll see, that is a completely an imposter version of joy. And the larger question which looms over the world is also, where is your joy? Therefore, the second question which I want to ring loudly within us is, what are you doing to obediently make the joy of the gospel known. So where is your joy, and what are you doing to obediently make the joy of the gospel known? If those questions don't make sense to you, they will as we dive into God's Word this morning. So I ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for this morning, which is Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor." And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that it would do work within us, that it would uh, search us and seek us out, that it would convict us where necessary. It would convict us where we seek to find joy outside of you. May it convict any who are here among us that have never sought to find joy in you, but have only sought to find joy in themselves and in this world. For those of us who find our joy in you, may it convict us to continually and obediently make the joy of your gospel known among all the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So when we last left off, we saw Isaiah's use of poetic idiom to describe the coming peace that the people were going to experience. So if you recall, he used past tense language to describe events that had not even yet occurred. And in doing so, he was saying that peace is coming. Hope is on the horizon, and it is sure. So as we jump ahead this morning, as we jump from chapter 9 now to chapter 11, we find ourselves in the midst of that looming gloom that Isaiah foretold. He said that the gloom was coming. However, in chapter 10, we see Isaiah communicate God's surprising actions within the midst of the chaos. And he communicates how God is working in this chaos, in this hurt, in this gloom, to make the light of joy shine brightly. And so the surprise here comes from a counterintuitive way in which God is acting. He's not only punishing his covenant people and actively at work redefining the future of his people, but he is doing so using a Gentile pagan nation. So that's the counterintuitive portion, right? Yes, he's judging his people, he's punishing his people, and he's redefining his people, but he's using a people who do not praise him or or even acknowledge him to do so. So this is counterintuitive on many fronts. So early on in chapter 10, and I want to kind of give us some context as usual here. Early on in chapter 10, we see the Assyrians are becoming puffed up. This is the Gentile nation which God is using to accomplish his purposes. And they're becoming puffed up and they're becoming boastful at what they're doing, that they're conquering the people. And they arrogantly boast of their mighty victory. And so God reminds them that judgment awaits them as well. He also reminds them that they are nothing more than a tool of his will. So that whatever victory they're accomplishing, it's to accomplish his greater purposes. 
So look to verse 15 of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 15, we read this. This is the Lord's words through Isaiah. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? So he's saying, should an axe in any way be able to boast over the one who holds it in his hand? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who is the one who is using it? Or can a rod... Could a rod wield the one who wields it? Right? These are all rhetorical questions because the answer to all of these are obviously absolutely not. So the king of Assyria may boast. He may puff his chest. He may even appear victorious for a while. And he is victorious in this. But this is all in accordance with the will of the Lord. So the Lord say, would you, Assyria, the mere axe in my hand, boast over me, the one who wields you, according to my purposes? And the Lord's obviously saying, no, 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 no. So this is the picture that Isaiah paints for us. So continue, pick back up in verse 19 of chapter 10. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So as high as a child can count, that's how few shall be the remnant of the trees of this forest. So we're, we're giving all this, this lumberjack depiction here, right? We have an axe, a saw, hewn trees, so many trees chopped down that even a child can write down the amount that's left. Okay, verse 20. And that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. So what we see time and again is that God shapes the course of history to achieve his purposes and faithfully preserve his people. So the picture painted by Isaiah is one of a, a desolate forest, just completely wiped out by this axe and this saw that the Lord is hewing. God is using Assyria to chop down the forest, which he himself planted and allowed to grow. Right? And he's saying that the, the remnant of the trees, those that I preserve, will be so few that a child can write them down. <clears throat> I love hunting. Many of you know this, talk about it from time to time. So a few years ago, one of the spots which I love to go to and hunt is out near Caddo Lake. Uh, and it's mostly planted pines, okay? And so a few years ago, this spot, one of the areas was thinned out, right? This, um, this is logging terminology, which means they go through and they, they mark all the trees that are kind of growing crooked or maybe seem like they're going to be no good. They mark all these different trees and they go through and they thin out this huge, wide swath of land, Right? And the problem was they did this in September, which greatly annoyed me, right? Because that's right before October, which is bow season, right? That's, that's the time when I get really excited. So I was out there one Friday in September while they were doing all this, and I was doing what I call deer chores, right? And, I, uh, and the loggers were there, 
And so I got to watch uh, from afar some of the process. Okay, and it was just fascinating to watch this giant machinery that would just wrap around a tree at the base, it would cut it off, and then it would pick up a pine tree as if it was a toothpick, and then it would suck it through, cutting off all the, the branches that were on it, and then it would lay it down in a pile, right? Just like it was nothing, nothing, right? And that's what the Lord, that's the picture that the Lord is painting here. That the axe is in my hand. The saw is in my hand. I'm the one at work here, Assyria. Don't get it twisted. You're just the axe and the saw. Okay? So you're just the machinery. I'm the one that's pulling the levers. Okay? So what Isaiah describes here is that the Assyrians are just that. That he is wielding the axe and he's simply, he's not simply thinning out the forest. Right? But to use more logging terminology, this is a clear cut. This is not just, I'm just going to pull out just a few here and there or do anything, but I, I'm, I'm clearing it out. And what I leave left is so few a child can write it down. But what he makes clear in these verses, in verse 20 there, is that this is not for the destruction of his people, but the preservation of This is for the flourishing of his people, that he is thinning down to a remnant because it will cause them to lean deeper into God's grace and provision. So did you catch that there in verse 20? So they are no longer lean on him who struck them. So they're not leaning on the ax. They're not leaning on the saw anymore. They're not hoping for grace from their attackers, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So, then Isaiah describes this, as if Assyria thought that they could escape their fate, is that judgment is coming against Assyria as well. Verse 33 of chapter 10. So, he begins to describe that uh, in that day, the burden will depart from his remnant, the yoke from their neck, the yoke will be broken. Verse 33, behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So he's saying, you who were the axe and the saw are now a forest yourself and I'm coming after you next. So don't think that because you're puffed up right now, you're simply puffed up because I'm the one who's done it. And then you will one day soon be the forest. So Assyria will be on the receiving end of the axe and the saw. So there's tons of destruction and hurt and anguish all depicted as deforestation right here. So what will be left What's left after all of this is a field of gnarled and hewn stumps, right? That's that's what's going to be left after the Lord does all this work with the axe and the saw. It's just stumps. But what else will be left? Verse 1 of chapter 11, our text this morning. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So, you know, you know what happened after I was annoyed that 
that logging, the loggers had gone through and done this thinning out, you know, time that I thought was just was the worst. New growth. And what do deer enjoy feeding on? Green, leafy, uh, the shrubby brows is what, is what they call it. But they he said, after all that, there's all this new growth. So there's tons of deer activity in this area where I was so annoyed that oh, they had done all this. But because of the new growth, it actually brought deer activity. So because all the weaker trees had been removed, more sunlight was allowed in, which allowed for an abundance of food, an abundance of growth that wasn't there before. So with Isaiah having painted the image of complete deforestation in our heads, he now focuses on the stumps, what's left. And coming forth from this stump is a shoot, new growth, new life, hope in the midst of peace. And so ancestrally speaking, we see he tells us who this stump is, kind of represents, right? The stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was the father of David. So if a shoot comes from this stump, it must be from the line of David. David. So therefore, this one who comes as a shoot comes from the line of David. And the Lord is showing complete consistency and faithfulness to his covenant. So he's saying, I might be hewning down all these trees, and it might look like my people are defeated and Assyrians are puffed up, but there's coming forth a shoot. After all of this, new growth, this is all according to my purposes. So here at the end of all this chaos and hurt, as a judgment against their sin, God shows that come his, with his judgment comes his grace. He's showing grace in the midst of judgment. And this is what we're seeing here. God's people are perpetually rebellious and sinful continually seeking to find joy outside of him. So for this very reason, the Lord used a pagan nation to preserve for himself a remnant who would find joy in patiently waiting for the coming of his Messiah, this coming shoot. And this is at the heart of the Christmas story. You may not see it yet, or maybe you're familiar with all this, so you understand it, but just stay with me. So this brings me to my first point that the Lord delights for us to find joy in Him. It's at the heart of this story here. The people are finding joy outside of Him. And so He used a pagan nation to judge their sinfulness, but in doing so also preserve for Himself a remnant who would look with joy in expectant hope at what the Lord was doing ahead through all of this. And this is at the heart of the Christmas story, that the Lord delights for us to find joy in Him. God's people found joy in their gods and their piety. And Assyria found joy in their ability and their might and their wealth. But God's actions bear the fruit of joy for His people. Whether they seem bleak in the moment, God's actions bear the fruit of joy for His people. Because joy is not found in themselves, but in Him. And He bends the arc of history to His purposes. 
that his people may find joy in him and in him alone. So with that in mind and with this incredible example of God's power and sovereignty and bringing all of this about because of his will, preserving his purposes and enacting his plans, let us as his church rejoice in finding true joy in the person of Christ. Let us rejoice in God's actions to bring this to fruition. Let us rejoice that we have a source of true joy, not the false joy that this world offers. So if you're here this morning and you don't have joy, you've been searching for joy in all other avenues that this world foolishly and deceptively and sinfully tells you will bring you joy. Let me urge you to hear this good news this morning, that joy can only be found in the person of Jesus. And the Lord stepped in to make that possible. He came to us at Christmas, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we couldn't die, that we might be able to find true joy in our Creator. So repent and believe. As we continue reading, Isaiah tells us of the divine nature of this coming shoot. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That should sound familiar. We'll see that here in a little bit. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, given that this shoot is from the stump of Jesse and therefore is provided in faithfulness to God's covenant with David, this shoot will be a king. And as a king in the line of David, that provided by God, just as David was empowered by the Holy Spirit, so too will this shoot have the Spirit of the Lord rest on him. So just as David was anointed with oil, this coming king shall be anointed by The Spirit. Now, here's the thing. We're not simply told of the Spirit of the Lord resting on this coming shoot, but we're given a set of three consecutive volleys of pears, right? Not pears, the fruit, but pears of things, right? So so we have three consecutive volleys, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, okay? And in those three volleys, we have pairs of things that are uh, characteristics. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, we have these three consecutive volleys, ways in which the Holy Spirit will more fully rest on this king than it did with David. Ways in which the Holy Spirit will more, be more fully evident with this king, even than it was with David. So first, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. This king will rule with a complete grasp of reality. So what David lacked, but Solomon was gifted with, this king will have in complete fullness. Wisdom, understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. These are practical attributes, right? Meaning not only does he have all wisdom and understanding, but he is wisely able to carry out those plans with counsel and might. 
the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So finally, this divine king will possess what all other earthly kings lack, a complete knowledge of the Lord, which leads to a proper reverential awe of the Lord. Where do we see this prophecy fulfilled in Jesus in such a visible and tangible way? Well, it's at his baptism. At his baptism, we see the Spirit visibly rest on Jesus and the Lord audibly anoint him. Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This is also quoted later on in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So this is another part of another messianic prophecy. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is the very text which Jesus reads in the synagogue in Luke 4. Essentially declaring, it's me, I'm him. So this truly remarkable divine king realigns our joy. He leads us in showing what it's like to have a complete knowledge and reverential awe of the Lord. And how does he do it? He does it by coming and preaching his people and his church into existence. The advantage that we have over Isaiah is that we have come to know this king and his name is Jesus. We see this. Peter alludes to just this. Uh, if you want to make a note there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We see Peter make this note concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories verse 12 of first peter chapter 1 it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you talking about the church the prophets it was revealed to them they're serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this is why we can know with full assurance our next point on your outline, that Christ is the king we need. Because he is the true and better David, anointed with the Spirit, that rests upon him of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he leads us to walk in the same. And he came preaching that his people, his church, might walk in the same. It is only in submission to Christ's rule and reign that we can ever find true joy. Either we continue to supplant Christ as king and seek to rule our lives, finding joy nowhere, or we submit to the perfect divine king who rightly realigns our joy. This king comes to rule and reign not with oppression, not with ignorance, not with fear. 
He comes to rightly reign with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, that we might rightly find joy in Him. Which brings me to the next point there on your outline. That joy is a response to proper knowledge of God. People fail to worship God for lack of proper knowledge of how great and glorious He is. Therefore, we'll see folks seeking to find joy in many different areas. And maybe that's you. This coming king brings with him complete knowledge of God, with whom he is one, that he might lead us to have proper knowledge of God. Something that continues to lack among earthly kings. When we come to know God, and know Him rightly, the only acceptable response is to find all of our joy in Him. This is why Christmas is so good. It's the realignment of our joy. Emmanuel has come that we might have joy in knowing God and the grace of His salvation in Christ. We'll circle back to that in a minute. For now, we continue reading uh, of the, the right rule and reign of this spiritually anointed divine king. Verse 3 of chapter 11. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So there are those that think that they like to be scared. However, there is no one that would say they enjoy being in fear, like true fear. The type that... The type of scared that we see when someone watches a scary movie or goes to a haunted house or, or likes to brag that, they, that haunted houses don't affect them, right? That's fake, right? That's, that, there's, there's a knowledge that what you are seeing isn't real and that it has, has a determined end. There's an end to the haunted house. There's an end to the scary movie. There's a, there's a light switch to turn on if you're scared of the dark, right? So it's, it's temporary. It's fake. This is not so with the fear of the Lord. Because when it comes to the Lord, all emotions and feelings and responses must be weighed with eternal measures. Okay? And what we read of this coming shoot from the stump of Jesse is that he delights in the fear of the Lord. He relishes it. All other earthly kings only find delight in making sure that everyone fears them. This king in a proper uh, king delights in a proper reverential fear of the Lord. Christmas is an indictment that we have found joy elsewhere. All are guilty of placing our joy where it does not belong. We have all sought to find joy in other things, other people, other avenues, rather than the only true place where we can find joy. And not only that, but we've also sought to make ourselves out to be the source and definition of joy. 
We delight in self-indulgence rather than rejoicing in our creator and sustainer. Therefore, we are guilty of sin. And Christmas is a celebration that God refused to allow us to continually attempt to find our joy outside of him. It's the celebration that God refused to allow us to continually attempt to find our joy outside of him. He acted. He took up the axe and the saw that the shoot may grow. He bent the arc of history to his will. He refused to allow us to worship ourselves and find false joy in ourselves. He said, you will worship me or be subject to my just judgment. This is the summons of Christmas, that he who comes to bring and realign our joy also comes to judge. So come find true joy in the only one who is deserving of our rejoicing. That's the summons of Christmas. Or be subject to his just judgment. So Christ came as both our Savior King and, as the next point of your outline shows, Christ is our righteous judge. So again, where is your joy this Christmas? Either we will find our joy in Him or be subject to judgment. And there is no in-between. This is why, in verse 5, He's clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. So this clothing, this belt, stands for ready for action, ready to go at the moment's notice. This is how He stands, ready ready to execute what the Lord declares is right. That's righteousness. What the Lord declares is right. And he is faithful to perform it, which is what we see take place as we continue reading. And we pick back up in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So here we have a convergence of things which do not belong together. There's a lot, of, there's a lot that's out of place for our world in its current state. This is full of Counterintuitive relationships, counterintuitive diets. So why, why is the lamb dwelling with the wolf? The entire existence of the lamb depends upon it avoiding the wolf. Same with all the other relationships we see here. Why is the bear grazing with the cow? It no longer has to kill to get food. And their young lie down together. The lion. What is the lion eating? Straw, like an ox. That, none of that makes sense. Verse 8. We have a nursing child. So an infant is playing over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Yet, 
None of these things belong together. None of these things go, but they're all in complete peace with one another. Is what we're seeing in all of these relationships. So as if all these relationships weren't paradoxical enough, let's, let's think about that last one there. There's a child that's leading them. Children, infants don't lead. So something's happened here from verse 5 to verses 6 through 8. There's been a shift, and that shift is that the king has come. We're jumping across timelines here, right? That's what Isaiah did to us last week. We're jumping a timeline here. So in verse 8, we're told of a vulnerable infant playing at the den of one of the largest snakes, the cobra, right? Just, Just playing, having a good time right there at the hole of the cobra, right? And then one of the most poisonous, he's able to just cover, cover that one with his hand. No retribution, just, right? So there's, there's a leap which just happened, and it was, it was subtle, as is often the case with prophetic literature. Isaiah shifts our minds forward and back, Okay? So he shifts our minds back to Eden, where we see complete and perfect peace. These, all these relationships, oh, the lion is, is eating straw like the ox, so he's not eating the ox, he's eating the straw with the ox. The bear's not eating the cow, he's grazing with the cow. So it shifts our mind back to Eden, where we see complete and perfect peace, and it shifts our mind forward to where we see this peace again at the reign of this triumphant king. See, that's what's changed here. The king is coming, and now the king has come. And this is what it looks like when the king reigns with all this that we saw in verses 1 through 5. Is that when that king comes, it's completely new. Everything that you thought in this reality, in this sinful, broken world that exists, flip that upside down because it's going to be made right again. So, all of this is mentioned again in Isaiah 65, where then we see that the new heavens and the new earth, this child has grown into a hundred-year-old man with no issue. There's no, no, we see no death, no no passing away of all of this, right? So that brings me to the next point there on your outline, that Christ's first advent brings the promise of perfect peace. His second brings the execution of it. So we were promised peace in the first advent. His second advent rightly, completely, and wholly executes that peace across all creation. Now, execution. That sounds kind of harsh. It sounds kind of like a a harsh word to use when describing peace, right? I purposely chose that to use because... I feel like it has a a double meaning. It provides the perfect context to this point. Execution can mean the judgment of death upon someone, right? Or the completion of something. And Christ's second coming does both. Christ's second advent brings both. We saw this last week, the pronouncement of peace in Isaiah chapter 9. Peace comes to those whom he is pleased, not to the whole world. To the whole world comes a sword, and that sword 
divides. Those whom he is pleased and those whom he is not. Those whom he is pleased get peace. They get this. They get verses 6 through 8. Those whom he is not get the rod. They get the saw. They get the axe of judgment that we saw there in chapter 10. That's why we see in Luke 2, if you want to turn there or just make a note, or, uh, the verses will be on the screen for you, but we see this in Luke 2 at the pronouncement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Luke 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Proper knowledge of God leads to reverential awe and finding joy in Him. And verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That meant they needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. So God provided one. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. So rejoicing at this knowledge of God that's being pronounced. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this is what we see. This is a pronouncement this, at the coming of Christ, this pronouncement of peace and this great rejoicing. And this is what we see when this child is now reigning. So we don't, we don't see this. We don't see this in our world right now, verses 6 through 8. So that means that as his coming comes the pronouncement that joy is possible and he's provided it. But the completion of it, the execution of it, comes at his second advent. So, but what has brought about this all-encompassing peace of all creation? Continue there in Isaiah 11, verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So all the earth know who is Lord. That's, again, the covenant name Lord right there, Yahweh. They know who God is. God has a name, and the whole earth knows it as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the earth will be completely full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's what brings about this great peace. The earth will be completely saturated with awareness of who God is and the abundance of his glory and the righteousness of his judgments. That pronouncement that the angels gave, that is what is being pronounced to the earth in the gospel. That is what's been entrusted to us as his church. We've been given the responsibility of making the gospel known. 
Now, what brought about this fullness of knowledge and this saturation? Remember back in verse 2, what did the shoot from the stump of Jesse come with? The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So as Christ came and preached and made that known to his disciples, and then they began to grow the church and preach that same message, that same knowledge, that same fear of the Lord. We see this in John chapter 16. Jesus having a conversation. You can just make a note or, again, the the verses will be on the screens for you. But John chapter 16, verse 21. Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. And he says this. Talking about their sorrow turning into joy. Now he knows, he senses the fear within them. And so he, he uses this analogy of a woman giving birth. He says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow, for her hour has come, because she's in pain, right? But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Some of you ladies might argue, I'm just saying what God's Word says, okay? So, why does she no longer remember the anguish, though? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Skip down there, verse 24. He says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you receive it, that your joy will be made full. He is not hidden, nor does he hide. God acts to bring about knowledge of himself. Therefore, God's actions bear the fruit of joy for the nations. That's the next point there on your outline, that God's actions bear the fruit of joy for the nations. Because joy is the proper response to the knowledge of God. And God acts to bring about knowledge of himself. And God bends the arc of history to his will. Therefore, he will be known in all of creation bearing the fruit of joy to the nations. And this is our mission, church, to make his name known. This is the great commission. This is what God has been purposing for his people to do all along. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. The signal is not hidden. It's, it's meant to make it known. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. God has been purposing to bring and reflect, and this is our purpose, to bring and reflect knowledge of him to all creation, that all creation might find true joy in him. The joy of Christmas is not the joy of Christmas morning, New presents. It's not the warm feelings. The joy of Christmas is that joy is coming to the nations in the gospel and that it has come to us. Therefore, church, let us find joy in him and in walking in obedience to this mission of his kingdom. That is spreading the joy of him to the nations. We won't be the type of church that does not answer this call. I've had incredible discussions over the last 
couple of months or, or several weeks um, and discussions that are continuing with our missions committee. We had a great and healthy budget meeting yesterday with the finance committee, and we are going to be the type of church that leverages all that God blesses us with to make his name known. So why is the arrival of a righteous judge a joyous occasion? Because the good news is that this righteous judge is also the one who takes on our punishment so that we might have peace. There are an estimated 3.2 billion people in the world who do not know the name of Jesus, meaning that they do not find their joy in him. There are countless others who know his name but join that 3.2 billion in finding their joy elsewhere. So the announcement of joy to the world at Christmas is not only a reminder for us to find our joy in him, but a clarion call to missions. So where is your joy this Christmas? Are you seeking joy in the consumerist, self-centered, commercialized Christmas? Is your joy in trinkets and toys and objects? Is your joy in family and friends, although that might seem good and, and, and right, and that might seem like a great place to find joy. That might seem like a noble place to find joy, but it's wrong. Joy is a consistent response throughout the Christmas story. And what is the joy in? It's in the coming of Christ. As our joy is in his second coming. The joy of Christmas is not warm feelings or seasonal affections. The joy of Christmas is Christ.